Welcome to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Accelerate your success with insights from a multidisciplinary team of healthcare experts as they discuss an array of topics. These timely discussions can help you better navigate the challenges of running your ambulatory care practice. Here is your host. Hello, this is Graham Brown, Senior Vice President with NextGen Healthcare. Last year, my dear colleague, Dr. Marty Lustig, retired from NextGen Healthcare, so I'm thrilled to have him back with me today to discuss his recently completed book, published by the prestigious Johns Hopkins University Press. The book is called Health Plans Unmasked, and today we'll spend some time talking about the book, how it came to be, and some of the great insights that can be gleaned from its pages. I hope there are a few key takeaways our listeners will get from today's podcast. Managing a provider practice today is getting more and more complex, and it's important to understand and recognize the role of what Dr. Lustig refers to, using a Wizard of Oz reference, as the man behind the curtain. Marty, welcome back to the podcast studio. Thanks, Graham. It's great to be here. I can't say I miss uh, working and enjoying retirement, but I do miss seeing you uh, each day, uh, so it's nice to be back. Great. Well, happy to have you here. Um, so, Marty, talk a little bit about how this book came to be. I, I noticed in the introduction that you mentioned our friend and colleague, Dr. Betty Rabinowitz, who retired two years ago now, and that she had encouraged you to write it. But what was the inspiration behind the book? So in many ways, the book is kind of a culmination of the unplanned and circuitous path that my career has taken, starting with uh, being a practicing pediatrician and then taking on increasingly demanding uh, administrative and leadership roles in the Kaiser Permanente system. Uh, then I was the chief medical officer for small health system here in upstate New York, and then spent uh, 13 years at the Blue Cross plan uh, in the same region before joining you and Betty at NextGen Advisors. And right as we started to build the NextGen Advisors, of course, the pandemic hit. And one of the side effects of that was is that we started writing blogs. Uh, so inevitably for me, as I was looking at the implications of the pandemic on the providers, writing blogs about the challenges and opportunities that this presented in, in terms of the relationship the providers had with payers was a kind of natural fit for me. And as, as Betty started looking at the blogs I was writing, she said, Marty, you really ought to write a book on this. You know, you've got experience and insights that most people, at least on the provider side, don't have. And I'm like, really, a book? Nobody's going to want to read a book that I wrote. But she really encouraged me, and, and uh, as did you. And uh, ultimately, with the support of the NextGen leadership team, I was able to get started on it. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. Now. Indeed. And it's come to fruition. And it's a very interesting read uh, with a ton of great detail. So let's dive in a little bit. We're not going to be able to cover everything that this book addresses and would certainly encourage our readers. Uh, we'll provide some details later on where they can pick up a copy. You set the stage in the chapter, The Basics, describing the genesis of employment-sponsored indemnity insurance coming about in the era after World War II. The growth in these non-taxable employment benefits was really dramatic, uh, and certainly by the 1960s, almost 80% of the U.S. population had that type of coverage. Just after that, uh, there was a recognition that you know there was still a group of individuals, if they didn't have employment-based insurance, were uninsured. 
And so talk a little bit then about some two key legislative events that followed that era, the passage of the Medicare and Medicaid Act in 1965, and then the HMO Act in 1973. Each of these had a separate but pretty profound effect on the relationship between doctors, patients, and the evolution of what we now think of as payers. So there's a lot to unravel there. But in some ways, if we start with the Medicare and Medicaid Act, it's back to the future because it was actually an attempt to solve the same problem that Obamacare was trying to solve, which is the uninsured in the United States. As you mentioned, you know, coming 1960, by 1960, about 80% of the population was insured. And if you looked at those who weren't, they were the elderly and the unemployed or the underemployed. And so the thought was that by creating a government-sponsored program for Medicare for the elderly and Medicaid for the poor, that we would solve or largely solve the uninsured problem. Uh, Little did we know that 50 years later, 60 years later, we'd still be struggling with the same issues. Um, But that was the intent. What's striking to me about that is is that though it was a single piece of legislation that created both Medicare and Medicaid, as everyone knows today, they're two very different programs. Uh, The book goes into a little more detail about how they're different. But essentially, you know, Medicare is a federally run program that uh, the states have virtually no jurisdiction over. And so it's consistent across the country to anybody who's over 65 who qualifies, as well as other special populations. Whereas Medicaid, in order to get it passed in that legislation, uh, President Johnson had to compromise with the southern states and make Medicaid a largely state-driven program where the states had the option of both opting in or out, as well as defining more clearly who would get coverage under that program, who would be excluded, and what the benefits would be. So Medicaid, as a result, has always been inconsistent uh, state by state and still is today, despite multiple attempts to make it more consistent. Mm -hmm. Um, So Medicaid is also a federally funded program. A large amount of the cost of that program is actually borne by the federal government with some co-share by the states, as I understand it. And as you're saying, a huge amount of variability from state to state, both in terms of who's eligible for coverage, the level and the richness or lack of richness, as it were, of benefits that are included in the program and how those how those two fit together. I mean, even since then, as we've seen Medicaid ex- expansion and the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, there was a, a goal then to broaden through that legislation, this extension into Medicaid to provide it to a larger population base. But still, states had the opportunity and the authority to opt out of that. And so we still see this disparate landscape of coverage that was meant to be rectified back in the 60s, but isn't. So the intent of the ACA was to eliminate that inequality. But the Supreme Court decision regarding Medicare expansion basically said, no, the federal government can't legislate expansion. Each state has the choice. And interestingly, you go back to the 1960s when the southern states were the reason that Medicaid was state run 
if you look at the states, the dozen or so states that did, have not accepted Medicaid expansion, almost all of them are former Confederate states. Yeah. So this issue of the geographic variability, unfortunately, still exists uh, for that mm -hmm. um, Medicaid population. Yeah. So you also asked about the HMO Act. So the, the last thing I'd say before I go to the HMO Act is that Medicaid and Medicare, when they started, were really fairly small programs that leveraged the capabilities of the health insurance companies to administer the benefits that the government was beginning to pay for at that point. It's interesting that they've grown so much that the, the cards have really flipped. And now the decisions that are made at the federal and state levels for coverage within the Medicare and Medicaid space are major drivers of what the commercial insurers ultimately decide to cover and at what payment scale they cover them. They end up that the government is now driving those things as opposed to the private insurers. But then on top of that, the HMO Act in 1973 was another watershed. And what that did was it took what had uh, been in healthcare insurance, just like car insurance, that was indemnity insurance, where the agreement in the policy was really between the insurance company and the consumer. And they went and got services, and then they were reimbursed by the insurance company for their losses related to whatever services that were, they were insured for. The HMO Act basically said, uh, created a, a series of carrots and sticks that, that really forced uh, insurance companies to build their own networks, contract directly with the physicians and hospitals and other providers, and then offer benefits to employer groups and uh, to individuals where they took responsibility for the health plan that being they took responsibility for the network, for the quality of care, for the access to care in return for the premiums. So now instead of a direct contract between the patient and uh, the consumer and the health plan or the insurance company, the contracts were between the providers and the health plan and the consumers were essentially held harmless, which was nice for the consumers in that regard. But it also meant that all of the sudden insurance companies had to have a much different relationship with the providers. They had responsibility for clinical quality, so they developed their own clinical teams. They started getting their nose into what the, each practice, you know, how people were practicing medicine, reviewing their records to make sure that they were meeting standards. And by the way, they started utilization management and prior authorization programs to try and control costs as costs escalated. So the HMO Act was really a big watershed in this transition towards managed care and really placing the the health plans at the center of the relationship with the providers, um, as opposed to having the patients at the center of it. Um, it really was a big change. And even though technically that act expired in the 1990s, the impact of it is obvious to everyone persists to this day. Yeah, it really was, to, as, you, as you say, a watershed shift. And, you know, commercial insurance today, to put it simply, uh, is kind of a, an area where the evolution here brought an enormous amount of complexity and layering. 
uh, an administrative burden in some ways to both patients, understanding what's covered and what's not and how deductibles and copays and all of these new terms and mechanisms to force payment into somebody else's hands have been introduced. And also for physicians, right? Navigating that space, billing properly, understanding all the rules and how those vary across different payers. So talk a little bit about the transition of health plans from commercial indemnity into this managed care organization model and how that really has complicated the world of providers. This is a very complex question uh, because there are so many different ways that health plans uh, have complicated uh, the life of a provider and a patient. And those different uh, layers of complexity interact with each other so that they end up having a multiplier effect on each other. Yeah, I, I really spend a fair amount of time in the book trying to present them in a way that makes it relatively easy for folks to understand. But at the highest level, the, the variety of products that are sold in the commercial space. So, you know, we started with just HMO. Now we have a, a, an alphabet soup of HMO, POS, PPO, EPO, and, and beyond. Then we have uh, within each of those categories, um, they're funded in different ways. So in commercial insurance today, 60% of the, of the people who get commercial insurance are actually through self-funded products where the employer is taking on the risk. And because of the way the federal laws are written, employers have flexibility in benefit design that health that insurance companies don't. Mm. So while there's a somewhat of a standardization across the small business and individual plans that that are commercially insured offer, there's huge variety on the self-insured side, which is pushing now, as I mentioned, two thirds of the commercial insurance. Those are just a couple of examples of the kind of complexity, but those things, the way it's funded, layered on top of the variety of products are multiplied so you times each other. So you look at one PPO product, every self-insured company that uses that product with that health plan can have a slightly different definition of benefits. So from the provider's perspective, even at the local level, they may see multiple patients that look like they've got the same a product from the same health insurance company, but they actually have different benefits. Mm -hmm. And so it's not surprising how confusing this can become for providers and patients. Yeah. So, so what you're kind of outlining here is all of that alphabet soup, the PPO, the EPO, those are in some ways, what doctors, what facilities, what services are included in the insurance that's being purchased on behalf of that employee. And then to the extent that you're also describing the flexibility that the employer can have in designing their own benefits, they can say, we're not going to cover certain services, or we're going to exclude certain things from this program that we're offering to our employees. And so both the patient being able to understand that and know what they have and how that changes from year to year, because it does, as well as then the practice and all of the team at the practice trying to administer that again, gets into this extra layer of, of complexity that many of us probably just don't realize on the on the face of it um, is underneath each and every one of these different design elements. And, and yet another example of, of the, that, since most hospitals and hospital systems are fairly large employers, they're most frequently self-insured themselves. Yeah. 
in addition to tweaking the benefits, they will also also force the health plan to change the network design so that it's either a limited or tiered network so that they encourage their employees and their families to use their own services and not go to other places in the same geography. And again, that creates enormous complexity and often creates complexity that the health plans actually lack the capabilities to efficiently and reliably implement. So not only is it confusing for the providers, it's challenging for the health plan and the patient and the doctors get caught in the middle because things fail to get paid correctly and or to get they're they're denied when they shouldn't be or they're approved when they shouldn't be all kinds of problems yeah. occur yeah um so let's shift focus a little bit to some of the challenges practices face today in managing this environment with multiple payers several lines of business with each payer and making sense of all that data In addition, we're seeing a greater penetration and focus on clinical outcomes and cost management, driven in many ways by new value-based payment methods. Um, You note in the chapter that you wrote on analytics that providers, uh, payers also see data as one of their most valuable assets, right? Um, That's that's kind of the, the currency of tomorrow is data and who controls that data. But taking information in your electronic health record and combining it with claims data or making meaningful, informed decisions about how to change the care provided is really a lot of work and not something that's kind of in the core of clinical practice. And when I imagine physicians go to medical school, they're not thinking about how they're going to aggregate data from multiple payers and understand the population they're serving and how to do it effectively. So what are some of those kind of key areas that providers should be focusing on as it relates to value-based care arrangements on this kind of data side and managing that complexity and that variability? So two points I would make uh, in this regard, as far as integrating data from the health plans, it's important to recognize that the health plans, I go into some detail in the book on this, on how health plans use the same data from their claims in a variety of ways. And depending on whether they're using it to manage their day-to-day operations for underwriting uh, their future costs or for managing clinical programs, the same data will be bucketed differently and used differently. And so when there's uh, increased transparency between the health plan and the provider, it can be really confusing because you're looking at what's supposed to be the same data, but it's giving you somewhat different results in different categories because things are defined differently. So I would encourage people not to get distracted by those differences. They do need to spend some time to understand them, but oftentimes what you need is to use an expert on the provider side as a consultant to help navigate the issues and convince everyone that nobody's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. It's just that the data is complex. But the other thing I would say in terms of where to focus in value-based arrangements is people tend to look for a silver bullet in terms of where there are opportunities for savings. And they'll point to some new drug that costs $100,000 a month or new procedure that costs $100,000 per hip or whatever it is. Um, And those are important places to look because we do know that over time, new technology is the single biggest driver of cost trends. But at the same time, in the short run, variation in care is actually the single biggest opportunity. And you don't have to look at new things. If you're a large delivery system and you're taking care of, you know, 
100,000 people, if you look at how their sinusitis is being managed across your primary care doctors or across your ear, nose, and throat specialists, you'll see that there's significant variation in the costs. And if you're measuring outcomes, you'll be able to look at cost versus outcomes. And you can quickly identify for any diagnosis you want to pick, where's the variation and start asking questions to your experts, your clinical experts about how does this variation compare to what we think would be the best way to care for these patients. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, you're going to find opportunities to improve care and reduce costs for very routine kinds of things. You don't, this isn't, doesn't have to be rocket science. And as you get your hands around the data, you can really leverage it to get some really practical improvements in, in, in your care. Um, so as a follow-up to that, you know, practices, as, as I look at them, unless they're large, sophisticated health systems, they rarely have the in-house expertise to level the playing field in their relationships with payers. Payers come with an enormous amount of data that they've been studying and trending for decades, and providers just don't have that viewpoint. They don't have that perspective. So what are some of the business functions or services that practices might consider outsourcing or buying from a third party or using some external expertise to have their own insights and data that they can ensure that they're kind of evening that playing field and can be successful in value-based care or just other regular fee-for-service arrangements with their payer partners? Yeah, there's, there's probably too many to go into, but I'll highlight a couple of them. One, just from where our conversation has been, that um, you know, if you're moving into the value-based space, having a strong partner in terms of how you build your data infrastructure for what I would refer to as population health care, someone like NextGen that really is there to help you normalize the different sources of data that are coming in, be able to categorize them the way that Medicare wants them to categorize, the way that each state and Medicaid would want them categorized, the way your commercial insurers might want them. There's a, it, it's That itself is a complicated task and you need a strong partner who you have confidence can do that well for you. In the short run, I would say that you're in the billing space, the complexities of how each health insurer processes claims and how they change their rules for claims processing in real time in order to maximize their savings based on the evolving rules that are coming out uh, nationally, it's almost impossible unless you're a huge organization to keep up with that stuff. And in terms of a return on your investment, having a good revenue cycle management partner, I think is something that everybody needs to consider in today's world. They not only can help you in the very short run in terms of making sure you're getting paid appropriately by each payer for the services you're actually rendering, they also, in a fairly short amount of time, can identify the hot spots in your contracts with each payer so that when it comes time to renew that contract, you know exactly what the key issues are that need to be solved so you don't continually butt your head against the wall with that payer. Yeah. So that's a big one. And then finally, if you're moving into the value-based care contracting space, the health plans have enormous knowledge and resources on the actuarial side to predict cost. And the complexity and nuances of how that gets written into your contracts is hugely important to the providers. It can make the 
difference between success and failure with exactly the same performance on the clinical side. So bringing in some external expertise at contracting time, specifically around the actuarial side of what your you know target budgets are, I think is another area to look at seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. The, the contracting side is an area that both you and I had a lot of experience in and a ton of interest around. Frankly, it's a fascinating uh, world when you get into it. And it's an area that you cover in uh, Health Plans Unmasked in some detail. Maybe highlight a couple kind of in each chapter, you do a nice job of of kind of key takeaways and recommendations. And I think this is an area where um, folks would benefit from understanding, you know, as they're thinking about contracting, what are some of those just kind of basic themes uh, that organizations should consider in preparing for that? To me, the first thing is you really have to know yourself well before you start trying to understand how you as an organization uh, stand in relation to the health plan or in relation to the other provider organizations in your area. Really know yourself. What is your mission and vision for your own organization? Where do you want to be five or 10 years from now? What do you think is the most important value that you bring to the communities that you serve? And what are the things that that aren't your priorities? Because once you understand that, then it opens up a whole slew of clarity around what do you need from the health plans and which health plans are positioned to actually help you in those needs and which ones should you not pay so much attention to because they're really kind of on the margin of what's most important to your organization. Hmm. So I'd say that's the first big thing. The other thing that I'd say is sort of a major theme of the book is, as we were alluding to, there are things you're not going to be able to or want to do yourself but you need to understand enough about how the health plans work, what their strategic priorities are, what their capabilities are, what their vulnerabilities are, so that you can navigate even with the help of experts in a reasonable way. So you don't need to become an expert on the health plans, but I think for most providers, they currently kind of view them as a black box that's just out there to hurt them. Uh, And to have a little bit more of a basic understanding of how they function um, is really critical. And then I think you're much better positioned to know when do I need help from somebody else in order to get to a better place. Great. Very helpful. Um, So final topic, given our time. Um, you cover the emergence of payviders, which is really that that combination of organizations that have traditionally been a provider and or a payer merging together in one way or another or acquiring. The past decade has seen health plans and insurance companies not only buy practices at scale, but uh, to purchase and establish analytics companies, care management services, risk management solutions, really stepping into all of these areas of Uh, the practice kind of vertical and horizontal in a way that these organizations didn't exist before. So do you see this practice continuing with further consolidation and kind of a blurring of the lines between payers and providers? I would answer it this way. Unfortunately, yes, I do. And I don't think it's healthy. Um, If you look today, you know, we have Optum out there that is owned by United Healthcare, a payer. And, uh, I believe they're in the neighborhood of 100,000 physicians that are now working for Optum. And uh, 
So, you know, there was a recent article in the New York Times last week, I believe, on the moral dilemma that physicians face. And it was all about the financial pressures that are put on doctors um, to make decisions that are not fully clinically based um, or certainly put pressures on them to make it difficult for them to focus on the, just the clinical issues. And I think the more and more that we blur the lines between payers and providers, the more we risk putting those healers in our system in an un untenable moral position. That said, it is an overwhelming trend right now. Um, one of the motivations for me for writing this book is that I think that physicians still have the capacity to lead us to the future of healthcare in the United States, but it's not going to happen by reacting to each new program that comes out over the next 10 or 15 years. It's going to occur by people deepening their understanding of how the current system works and figuring out how to position themselves to drive change in the direction that makes sense to them as providers. Well, with that, thank you, Dr. Marty Lustig, for joining me today on the Ambulatory Care Today podcast. Dr. Lustig's book, Health Plans Unmasked, is available now from Johns Hopkins University Press. It's available on Amazon, Google Books, Burns & Noble, and many other book retailers encourage you to take a look for it and pick up a copy. This is Graham Brown with NextGen Healthcare. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Never miss an episode by subscribing at nextgen.com podcast. To see a list of products and services tailored for ambulatory care practices, visit nextgen.com.